0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Last year, the U.S. birth rate experienced its largest single year drop in nearly 50 years. For years, America's 2.1 fertility rate made it an outlier, especially in compared to other developed countries. For the last decade, that number had begun trending downwards, plummeting to last year's figure of 1.6 children per woman. These numbers enter the news the same week the New York Times published an essay by columnist Elizabeth Brennig. I became a mother at 25, and I'm not sorry I didn't wait. Many warmly received and shared the piece, which explores the author's experience of learning she was pregnant and the many factors that have caused millennial women to delay children, including economic concerns, higher education, race, and geography. But for others, it struck a nerve. One commenter wrote on the New York Times website, There are few things more irresponsible than bringing a child into the world in 2021. I know it's difficult to reject the incredible social and cultural pressure that encourages us to reproduce. The easiest thing will always be to have children. But a good rule of thumb is that the easiest option, the one our current paradigm encourages, generally causes the most damage and suffering. On Twitter, writer Jill Filipovic wrote, I would really love to read more essays and op-eds from women and men too who regret having children as early as they did regret having as many as they did or regret having children at all. There's not much about motherhood that remains publicly unexplored, but that does. As many of you know, last week on Quick to Listen, we looked at motherhood and parenting overall from a policy perspective. This week on the show, we wanted to have this conversation at a more personal and theological level. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today.
2: And I'm Ted Olson. I'm the executive editor of Christianity Today. Hello, Morgan.
1: Hey Ted, how's it going?
2: I'm I'm just going very, very well. So <laughs> adjusting adjusting to my new role here at CT, observing ascension over here.
1: Ted, I just wanted to make a note for our listeners that we have a new release day that we are coming out on.
2: Yeah, we thought we'd experiment with this later in the week schedule. Give us a little more time to pull things together and have good guests and make sure we're hitting the most active topics.
1: All right, Ted, this essay came out right around Mother's Day. I know you saw it when it came out. What was your gut reaction to reading the piece and then watching at least Twitter react to it? So...
2: Yeah, my experience was first through Twitter and all of the fans that I saw in my kind of Twitter follows who were like, man, I love this piece. And boy, I love Blitzbranding. And that <laughs> I think about, you know, how much my fairly conservative and I would uh, say politically conservative Twitter friends. They just love this Catholic socialist. <laughs> they are super fans. Of it. it's, <laughs> she's, she's definitely Evangelical's favorite, favorite socialist, for sure. But especially because she is willing to uh, write pieces like this that are, pre- she's pretty socially conservative, even as her, you know, politics skew leftward. And then I saw the kind of second wave of Twitter stuff the next day where everyone was, you know, defending Liz Braining. And I had kind of missed the in-between part where they're to see backlash. I'm apparently not following the kinds of folks who were giving the backlash that you noted at, in, in your in your intro. You know, I'm a little skeptical. I think that, you know, some of the pushback on Brain Inks piece was just, you can always find people on Twitter saying outrageous things. I right. um, have <laughs> that fear about this show. In our effort to go beyond hashtags and hot takes, I'm like, do we sometimes amplify hashtags and hot takes? Beyond what actually normal people are thinking about and talking about, but I think in this case there's at least a real conversation, or or at least a, a real anxiety in some of this about about having babies in a scary world, about you know having babies as a hope for the future, as having babies as is an ecological threat to have babies that mm-hmm. comes up every once in a while, and then also I think there's you know a kind of a a Christian way of, of thinking about babies. Well, I should, I should say kind of a culturally Christian way of talking about babies that emphasizes maybe the, you know, yeah, it's, it's just something you do. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's true too. But I do think that what I appreciate about the Twitter conversation is there is something cosmic and important and big about having children that I'm like, yeah, the, the, heat around Braining's Calm, I want, I want to easily dismiss, but I'm like, no, no, no. It also represents that having babies is a big deal, not just personally, but I think in some ways cosmically as well. I am, I should probably mention that I, I am a dad. I have two kids. So two is, is below well, less than
1: the- 2.1. <laughs> I know,
2: it's less than 2.1. I'm not, you know, there's that aspect where sometimes I'm, I'm like, am I letting the team down here by only having two children? We had some important personal reasons for having two children. Morgan, I'm eager to hear how you responded to all of this Mother's Day kerfuffle.
1: I mentioned at the top of this that the fertility rate in the U.S. is plummeting. And I have been someone who's kind of followed some of the folks who care a lot about these numbers for, I don't know, maybe since college. I actually used to like read different atlases and world books growing up. And I remember looking at these numbers when I was younger. I also remember reading articles that talked about how America was in much better shape because of our fertility rate, which I feel like as a kid at least was like even 2.3 or 2.4. And at least the part of me that loves and believes in American exceptionalism, it's like, yeah, go America. But <laughs> <laughs> i be serious. Yeah. But at the same time, I've also just like felt this like huge disconnect for so long between how economists and sociologists talk about the fertility rate versus the actual reality of having children. Yes. And they will use this like language of economics to be like, this is what's going to happen. And then they'll start talking about workforce population and our grain population and things that I'm sure economists hold very dear to them and think about emotionally. But most of us don't use those terms to talk about children in the same way. And so the language has always felt very sterile, very cold to talk about something that's very visceral. I don't necessarily think that conversation is actually that helpful, especially since many of these people are doing a lot of hand wringing, but I don't think they're doing a great job trying to convince people about that, which is why Liz's piece was so interesting because in many ways it is far more humane, personal than a lot of these other things that Maybe trying to—I don't know. if to, I honestly don't know who they're individually trying to convince. Maybe they're just trying to convince like public policymakers to do something, which sometimes even that conversation can feel a little bit stilted. Anyway, I appreciated reading Liz's piece. I was glad that it came out, and I don't think that we hear a lot from people who are mothers in their tw- in their twenties from people who are specifically speaking about that experience. If that will, especially in a place like the times. And I'm not necessarily surprised that it got the attention that I got because I do think that, again, this is not an identity that we're normally used to hearing someone name and talk about and discuss in real time. Because of that, I think there's a lot that kind of like comes out, especially our assumptions about cultural scripts to follow, about what people might call the success sequence, which is this idea of finish school, then get married, then have children And it will all work out for you, which is not necessarily how life actually goes, but how uh, definitely something that many of us have believed for a really long time. Also, the sense of which if you read other comments, I know, Ted, you made a great point about, you know, are we hunting for negative comments? There are actually a lot of very positive comments towards her piece on the actual site itself. And many of them with people wrestling with the fact that they waited as long as they did to have children, you know, in very like vulnerable and confessional ways. So I'm glad that we're going to have this conversation because clearly you and I can already talk about it. We could do a whole episode on our own gut checks to this. But we're not going to do that because we have a guest. Ted, who is our guest?
2: Our guest has been on the podcast before. We're thrilled she's back. Rebecca McLaughlin. She holds a PhD in Renaissance Literature from Cambridge University and a theology degree from Oak Hill College in London. She is the co-founder of Vocable Communications and is the author of Confronting Christianity, named Christianity Today as 2020 beautiful orthodoxy book of the year. It also has a follow-up edition for youth called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. Her latest book is The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims. And she is very wise on a whole host of topics, including this one. So we are we are thrilled that she's back on quick to listen. Thanks, Rebecca, for coming back on.
3: Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Let me
2: start with this. I think part of the reason why Liz Branning's piece was a little bit it had had a little bit of the tone that it did about like, man, I'm glad that I did this. Was you know, she is being a, a socialist and being a, a you know opinion writer for the New York Times. Like she is in a environment that that has a little bit of a reputation for being anti-natalist, uh, or for at least delaying childbearing until later in life. But, you know, also is very easy to read it and be like, this is a pretty Catholic piece. Like her, her her Catholic side kind of kind of came out pretty strong in that. And it made me think about how being pronatalist has often been seen as kind of a Catholic thing, I guess with a side of being a Mormon thing. The Evangelical Protestants post-pill, I would say, have, have not exactly been on the uh, have more babies and, and get started when you're young train, although we can we can all point to trends in churchgoers that tend to have more children tend to do it more tend to do it younger but in terms of like the writing and thinking and promoting you know early childhood and and lots of babies that world's kind of a little bit seated to the catholics in some ways are you observing any change in that do you think that's still somewhat the case what do you think the state of uh, ecumenical (laughs) (laughs) pronatalism is
3: gosh that's a, a very big question it's certainly the case, and, and I think this accounts for a lot of the American exceptionalism that, that Morgan was mentioning earlier, that religious people tend to have more babies. Whether we're talking about having more babies or not, <laughs> we are in fact having more babies, and that's, that's true in the US, and it's true globally as well. One of the things that was really striking to me, just as we sort of even get into this conversation, as I read Liz's piece, I was first struck by just how well written it was. <laughs> and I, I think there's a big myth that honestly haunts both our sort of secular liberal friends ecosystem and our own ecosystems often as Christians, which is that women sort of need to necessarily choose between having babies, especially having babies early, and uh, achieving excellence in, in any other sort of sphere of their life. And I think uh, one of the things, as I said, I loved about the article was how she, without making this point explicitly, actually demonstrated to us that this sort of myth of the, the mummy brain, the idea that you know having children sort of somehow rots your intelligence as a woman, which sadly I sometimes hear propagated in circles that I move in, it just isn't true. I think one of the struggles that we've had as evangelicals is that on the one hand, we've felt the need to validate women who stay home and take care of their kids. Um, and that's an important thing, and I think something that we should be validating. But we've tended to do it at the expense of women who are single, and at the expense of women who are mothers and also work outside the home. That's kind of where it made some, some quite unbiblical mistakes, because as we look at the scriptures, I, I think that there's an awful lot that can inform how we think about parenting, um, how we think about having children, whether to have children, etc., and the goodness of having children. The goodness actually of being other person oriented, which is something that I thought Liz Brenning brought out really beautifully in her piece, how becoming a parent kind of forces you to stop being primarily concerned with yourself and start being primarily concerned with somebody else. There's something extraordinarily Christian about that paradigm applied in any sphere of life. While we should and and must validate women who stay home full time with their kids, it's something that some of my smartest and most godly friends are doing right now. When we start to do that at the expense of other ways that, that women, a call to serve the Lord. When we start, for example, to talk about, you know, a woman's highest calling is to be a wife and mother, which is sometimes language that, that's used in our sort of evangelical circles. That, I think, becomes quite unbiblical and misleading. Because really, a woman's highest calling is to follow Jesus. And, and you can do that as, as a woman who has children and as a single woman. I don't know if you can hear this, but there's irony in the fact my two-year-old is right now hammering on the door <laughs> and trying to get into the, the room as I speak, just to, to illustrate the, the joy of being, <laughs> that's wonderful. being a mother whilst also trying to do anything else. <laughs>
1: Rebecca, I want to give our listeners some historical context about some of the discussions that we're having today. Ted was talking about pro-natalism. Before the advent of birth control, was it possible to be even pro-natalist or anti-natalist? Or is this something that has really only come into effect, at least as far as like individuals are concerned, this ability to take a stance on your own fertility in some ways, is that pretty new
3: yeah well it sort of depends how far back we want to go there's a, a piece of me that always wants to start quite I'm early
1: ready. go ahead look at,
3: well let, let's look at the world into which christianity was born into which jesus was was born in the first place it was a world in which sure people didn't have access to the pill but babies were routinely abandoned when they weren't wanted especially baby girls. Were, were seen as less valuable than, than baby boys. You know, leave your baby out to die or to be picked up and raised as a slave by somebody else. And that wasn't seen as morally problematic at that time because babies in and of themselves weren't seen as sort of precious humans made in the image of God. They were sort of seen more as, as possessions. And, and one of the big innovations that Christianity brought to, to the wider world and clearly coming out straight out of Judaism, but something that kind of exploded from Christianity And based on Jesus' own interactions with babies, famously, little, like Luke says, even infants were being brought to him. And his disciples turned them away. And Jesus says, no, let them come to me to such as these belong to the kingdom of heaven. This sudden kind of valuing of babies and small children as precious people made in God's image changed the way that parenting was seen, I think, in, in the early church. Should echo down to us today as we think about you know, conversations around abortion and as we think about parenting in general. At the same time, starting to develop this mold that says, you know, a, a woman's highest calling is to be a wife and mother, and that every child, you know, the sort of biblical way of, of mothering is, is for every child to have their mother's that undivided attention through the day. You know, we have this, what turns out to be actually a very modern concept of what it means to be a mother where we expect a small number of children and a very sort of intensive parenting style when the reality historically is that rich women have never looked after their own children and poor women have had you know seven children and job to support them so so we have this this mythology that's grown up that up until pretty recently up until the last couple of generations every child was carefully looked after all day long by by their mother and you know that they were very few children involved in this process. In fact, I mean, it's striking. Even Jesus' mother, who presumably was no, no neglectful parent, but the woman who got chosen to be the mother of his own son, didn't even realize Jesus wasn't with them for 24 hours when he was 12 after they left Jerusalem. Like this sort of, the reality is at that stage, as a 12-year-old Jesus would have been as seen as you know pretty mature, actually, not just a child, as, as we you know, 12-year-olds these days. And there's a much more expansive role of the, the general extended family and parenting. Almost the, the sort of pro-natalist, anti-natalist sort of conversations we have today are embedded in, in social realities that are quite different from those that our earlier ancestors lived with. We have just very different expectations of what it even looks like to to parent and what, what the responsibilities of a parent are.
1: What well, what makes the kind of maybe apprehension or ambivalence about bringing children into the world in 2021, what makes that conversation unique today?
3: I think there are, there are a range of factors. You know, one is the idea that sexual freedom is is more important than commitment in terms of our happiness, and especially for women. You know, the sexual revolution of the '60s bringing this this wonderful gift of, of commitment free sex to women in, in ways that pre pill you know, hadn't hadn't been possible. This being seen as a really good thing for women, and, and I know you know folks in my generation brought up at least in, in sort of societal terms. To think that, you know, the great things that that women of my generation had were A, the opportunity for commitment-free sex, and B the opportunity for a, a career that would be uninhibited by parenting.
1: Can I and just so, pause to ask one question really quickly? Yeah. I've heard it also told or explained as well that you know women weren't able to always not get pregnant if they do you know, they they were put into situations where they might not actually want to have children or it might not actually be good for their bodies to have children. Or so forth. And it also gave them more freedom in being able to space out their children and raise their families and pursue their stuff. So on the one hand, yes, the sexual freedom part, but too, even for women who were in marriages as well, mm-hmm. it gave them a little bit more agency in how that looked like.
3: Sure. Yeah. And so there's, you know, a lot of important conversations to be had around contraception of, of various kinds, I think, you know, within marriage. But I think even before we've got into that space, at least and I'm, you know, speaking only for myself as someone who was raised in in the UK and went going to very sort of secular academic schools where we were constantly being told, you know, you have opportunities that your parents or grandparents, as women, didn't have. There was this this paradigm that valued uh, you know, sexual freedom on the one hand and pursuit of career on the other. The possibility of having children was a very kind of conflicted idea. That on the one hand, it was something that probably we recognize that people wanted, but it was seen as very much a, a detrimental thing to the the pursuit of a career. And so I think, you know, part of the reason we've got into the situation we've got in today where a lot of women are actually wanting more children than they have. I and mean, this is one of the ironies about our current birth rate, you know, in, in, in the US, as you mentioned earlier, it's 1.6, 1.7 per woman. But actually a number of studies have shown that most women say they would like more, like 2.7 children. I mean, obviously, nobody wants 0.7 of a child, but like on average, actually, women today are having fewer children than they they want. It's not just that their desire for ch- children has been diminished; they feel like that's not economically possible for them, or they're becoming they're starting having children much later than than previous generations, so there's just not as as much sort of opportunity in terms of years and fertility to have children. So I think it's a very Complex picture, but one of the things that we've forgotten is, as Liz Renne points out in her article, the life-giving, beautiful, joy-giving experience of, of parenthood, which I think is is often sort of left out of of the picture as people think about, you know, especially as, as a more highly educated women think about their their futures.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of nine lives and counting a bounty hunter's journey to faith hope and redemption written by dwayne dog the bounty hunter chapman nine lives and counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events but also ventures into behind the scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly nine lives and counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more.
2: Yeah, the joy of parenting is something that I think kind of gets left out of some of the kind of the abstract conversations. I, you know, Morgan talked early about the problem of listening to economists talk about birth rate sometimes. And I definitely, we were talking about this, we were talking about what, what should we talk about the podcast this week. And I, I definitely felt that way. I, I, the ways in which economists talk about it doesn't resonate with me. The way in which Christians sometimes talk about it doesn't quite resonate with me sometimes. Except we ran this article back in the day in this other magazine that I used to run called The Behemoth by a guy named Ken Tanner. And you know he had this line in there, I mean, the focus of his article was like, you know, I do a lot of good things that are that have eternal significance. That God is going to, you know, remake the world using what we're doing now in some mysterious way, but in some radically different way. It's like, but the children that I have made, that God has made through me, these children are going to exist eternally. Like this is this this is truly eternally radically significant. These children that I've been entrusted with had a part in making that that's the most significant thing I'm I'm going to do because this really, really, really is eternal. They didn't exist and they're going to exist forever. You know, when I read that piece, I'm like, yes, that is exactly how I felt, you know, when my first child was born and when my second child was born, but it was a reminder when my second child was born, it radically reshaped my view of so much else of what I was doing. It reshaped my view towards my, my work, appreciate reshape my view, even to some degree towards my marriage. You know, obviously, my, my wife and I are extremely close, but reflecting on in heaven, we will never, neither marry nor, nor be given in marriage. Like, yep. But also, this kid, you know, our relationship will be different in heaven. We'll be brother and sister, I guess, in, in some way. This did not exist and now it exists forever. Like, that's that to me. I'm like, yeah, that's so different than talking about. children as kind of an economic value or kind of as, even even though when we talk kind of theologically as Christians about children as, you know, a sign of future hope, I'm like, yeah, but like they exist forever. Obviously having babies as part of God's good gift for Christians and non-Christians alike. In the same way that, that marriage is for Christians and non Christians. We're pretty good about talking about the ways in which you know marriage is you know sure you know about the couple, but it's also uh, importantly for us Christians, it's it's the image of Christ's relationship with His church. And there's a lot of Christian talk about what the Bible says about how to parent. year less in in my kind of uh, Christian circles about a uniquely view of of what Christian parenting is, or how it models kind of a special understanding of who God is. And our relationship there. I mean, we talk about the fatherhood of God, I guess. But what should we be thinking about in terms of what is there a way in which we can think about how babies tell us something about God, how babies tell us something about us, how having babies is a yes, a general revelation, but understanding the specific, special revelation that God has given us really reshapes a special way of how we view baby making,
3: marriage, as you mentioned is fundamentally for christians about the expression of jesus's love for his church like this this huge biblical mat- metaphor that comes to us it starts in the old testament with prophets comparing god to a faithful husband israel to an often unfaithful wife and it jumps into a new space when jesus says that he's the bridegroom uh, when paul says that christian marriage is like a little scale model of jesus love for the church and then Reaches a full blown sort of crescendo in the book of Revelation when a great voice shouts, The wedding of the Lamb has come, and Jesus' marriage to his church brings heaven and earth back together. Like, we're, we're at least starting, I think, to get a handle on how that actually should inform what our marriages look like. But what's fascinating to me is that whereas in the Bible, God is always pictured as the husband and not as the wife, or Jesus always the husband and not as the wife, there's something kind of important there. The Bible does actually give us maternal metaphors for God. So clearly we, ha- we, we receive God as our father, and that's a very, you know, very strong metaphor, especially something that, that Jesus gives to us as he gives us the Lord's prayer. But one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is, is Isaiah forty nine fifteen, when the Lord says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. And it, it, it was interesting to me because I loved that verse before I ever became a mother. And in my mind, that verse was saying, you know, God looks at us like we are the cutest little baby. You know, how can a mother possibly forget the baby that she's she's nursing? That this is we're we're so cute in God's eyes. <laughs> I had my first baby, and I started breastfeeding, and I'm here to tell you, breastfeeding is hard. It is a sacrificial, painful, like physically painful, at least in the early stages. Thing, it's, it's something that drags you out of bed in the night. It is an extremely Self sacrificial experience. It is also the other physical human experience. There are two physical human experiences that deeply connect us to somebody else and involve a sort of exchange of bodily fluids, and it's sex and breastfeeding. They're very different things. There's a kind of connectivity that arises and that is required by both that is visceral and intense and emotional. The experience of breastfeeding helped me to understand that verse in in a new way, because it's not just that God looks at us like, you know, aren't we these cute little babies? It's also an expression of his self-sacrifice for us. And those two go hand in hand as we understand more of God and of how he has loved us to the extent of giving up his own son for us. And I think they also help us sort of understand what it means to parent, which is to become sort of fundamentally other person oriented. To be willing to enter into a love relationship with someone who, from the very first, you will be the one who loves more, actually. Not that that dynamic can't change over time, but that there is a very one-directional kind of love that a parent bestows upon their infant in the first place, and a very sort of symbiotic relationship. So I think in becoming a parent, I, I do think grasp and glimpse more of how God loves us it's one of the ways in which God sort of embedded a metaphor in our in our lived experience to to help us to see something of how he loves us there but I think also as we think about you know what the New Testament says about the, the family of the church the body of the church that to me is a really important place where we need to kind of contextualize how we think about Christian parenting because I do think there is a great blessing in having children and I do think that from a Christian perspective we should be embracing the birthing and bringing up of children. I think the idea that this is only something that is done by the nuclear family actually misses a lot of what the New Testament is, is calling us to. I think it's something that the church as a whole should be participating in and where um, single people and grandparents and extended biological and spiritual family should all be involved in this process of raising children in the Lord
2: we talk about that in terms of child raising, but I am wondering if we can, if you see that specifically in mothering, I, you know, the, the one, <laughs> I was thinking about Jesus' words on the cross about, be you know, behold your, your mother, which I can interpret in all sorts of ways, just about, you know, Jesus' care for his mother in that moment. I can think about it in terms of, you know, I mean, there's, you know, Catholic echoes that I know, uh, and just in terms of like the role Mary has played and mm-hmm. some of that spirituality. I know that there's all sorts of Ways in which I have heard, behold your mother to John. I am wondering, is Jesus saying so- something significant there about what mothering looks like? I don't know. That's just a, that just occurred to me as you were saying that the New Testament view is about a broader than a nuclear family. I'm like, yep, I, I've heard that about kind of the, it takes a village to, to raise a child. There's a community aspect to child raising. But I am wondering, I haven't heard it too much about specifically about mothering.
3: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I think what comes to mind more for me from what Jesus says is when his mother and his brothers come to him, and he gets the message saying, you know, your mother and your brothers are here. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers looking around at his disciples, those listening to him, you know, whoever listens to my word is my, my mother and sister and brother. If you listen to what Jesus actually says in the Gospels, it's hard to land at the kind of prioritization of the nuclear family that we sometimes see as the the Christian norm. I think it's he's quite disruptive of that in some ways because he is continually expanding what family means. Sure, his 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 words to his mother from the cross, you know, connect connect up with that of having a, a non-biological son being connected to his biological mother in that way. But yeah, I think he's calling us to something that is expansive and that is both a sort of takes a village to raise a child, but also takes children to bring the village into itself, really. like I think it's it's not just for the benefit of the children, but also for the benefit of those of us who are, as adults, investing in the children of, of the church as a whole.
1: Rebecca, I'm going to make a plug for the other episode of Quick to Listen that you were on, where I know we got into some of this. It was episode 106, if people want to listen to that. More stuff, really good stuff about church being family, which I know you've done a lot of thinking around and what that will look like in practical ways for people. So if people listen to that, go back to listen to this one was called sit with your family at church, but maybe not your spouse. And it's from (laughs) 2018.
3: Uh, Yes, I'm laughing because I write on a lot of controversial issues. And I thought that the piece I'd written for CT on why I don't always sit with my husband in church, I thought it was the least controversial thing I've ever said. <laughs> and it turned out to be so controversial. I remember you emailing me and saying, you know, we need to have a podcast episode because
1: like, <laughs> people are pretty upset. <laughs> Strong feelings. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> exactly like this, what happened with this particular piece that we're talking about in the Times, I think. You think you're saying something very just like affirming and inviting towards other people and you stepped on a grenade. Who knew? All right. So before we started recording, we had had a short conversation that I cut off so that we could have it here about biblical motherhood and what the Bible actually says about how women should mother. And is that something that is actually out there and that the Bible does really speak to? A Yes and no. (laughs) If you're
3: mining the New Testament for specific versus for mothers raising children. There's Titus two four where older women are told to train younger women to love their husbands and children. And that's pretty much it. I, I'm not making that point to say, therefore the Bible doesn't value mothering or therefore the Bible has nothing to say about mothering. I think it's an awful lot to say. But I think sometimes we speak as if there is a very prescribed way and and pattern for quite sort of biblical motherhood that the Bible gives us and that anyone who's doing anything different is you know, clearly against the, the word of the Lord. And I think we have to be really careful when we start doing that. It, it's interesting to me that both in, you know, the famous sort of ideal woman of, of Proverbs 31, where her children actually mentioned very late in the description of her. And there's just sort of a thoroughly outline that her children rise up and call her blessed. And then in what Paul says about marriage in, in Ephesians 5, there's actually the idea that that women in in the Bible are sort of primarily focused on their children, like that that's most of what the Bible says about women. I think is actually quite unbiblical. Often in the Bible, women as individuals, for example, in the Gospels, are being engaged with and addressed sort of as individuals, really. And sometimes we don't we don't know whether they're married or not. We don't know whether they have children or not. We don't know, for example, in the Book of Acts, whether Lydia. We don't know what her sort of family situation is. You know, she has a household, but what does that mean? So I think we need to be careful when we start to be very prescriptive about what we think the Bible says about what it means to be a, a Christian mother. But at the same time, I think the Bible gives us all sorts of relevant commands, ranging from the, the clear picture throughout the, you know, the Old Testament and flying and into the new of raising your children in the Lord, which is something that both fathers and mothers need to be involved in, and then in all the commands we have about how we how we love others, so that the other person orientedness of Christianity, I mean, Jesus' strong language about how anyone who wants to come after him must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. The, the fact that the, the word denial is typically what comes with the word self in the New Testament, I think is, is a strong challenge to any sort of modern assumption that the main point of my life is my own fulfillment or my own career or my own growth in fame or whatever it is, there's strongly sacrificial call on parents in general. And, and I think, you know, often on, on mothers in particular, as people who have to physically give birth, which let me tell you is a painful and unglamorous thing, um, physically breastfeed, which once more is is can be a painful and unglamorous thing.
1: Can I just say it's interesting that you did bring up that particular passage about taking your cross, right? Because the beginning of it starts with, right? if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, that's an interesting dichotomy too, because it specifically names family members, right?
3: Yeah. And and clearly we know from Jesus' broader teachings and the teachings of the New Testament that he's not saying that we should hate those people in our lives. He's saying that compared to our love of him, our love of anyone else should be like hatred. And the irony there is actually the more we love Jesus, the more we will love others. Under him, we love others most when we love Jesus best, and and I think that applies. You know, in friendship, I think it applies in marriage. I think it applies in parenting. Nothing that I believe, I hope, I I hope everything I believe, I believe because it's in the Bible, rather than because of the sort of findings of modern psychology or the you know sociological studies, etc. But it's always interesting to me to see the ways in which what the Bible says tends to actually align with what's even being shown to. Aligned with human flourishing, whether it's regular church attendance or commitment, sex in the context of very long-term commitment, rather than sort of free, uh, so-called sort of free sex. Women who are very religious and married to very religious men in America, and who have broadly speaking traditional views of marriage, where they would agree with the statement that, in general, other things being equal, it's, it's better for a man to go out to go out to work. Those women are actually the happiest women in America. (laughs) <laughs> so this sort of ironic situation whereby the, the folks most pitied by secular liberal folk, i.e. You know, very religious women who may be staying at home with their multiple children and sacrificing their careers on this altar, turn out to be some of the happiest people in town. And again, that's not to say I think that's the calling on every Christian woman. I, you know, Some of my smartest and most godly friends are raising like four or five children full time at home. Um, some of my smartest and most godly friends are working full time and their husband is home with the kids. And some of my smartest and most godly friends are single and serving the Lord with wholehearted devotion. So I I, I don't think we, we want to be prescriptive about this. But it's just interesting how the things most uh, seen by some folks in the secular world as sort of inhibiting to individual flourishing turn out to be actually quite conducive to it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm interested in that juxtaposition as well of the take up your cross and human flourishing. Like that is, you know, like we we are called to sacrifice in some way, that that is how we best flourish as Christ has called us. <laughs> the cross is glory uh, in both for Christ and and uh, for us, which I guess leads me to a conversation that Morgan and I had as we were talking about what we could talk about today. The branding piece on motherhood was one option. And then we talked about how this is the time in which much of the church talks about the uh, ascension of Jesus and Jesus is going up in flesh to sit at the, at the right hand of God as someone who is both fully God and then also mysteriously fully human. And I, I was telling Morgan, I'm like, that, oh, let's, let's try to do both. That would be amazing. It requires a, a bit of a connecting the dots. But the ascension has all sorts of deep theological meaning for like who Jesus is, like, the, you know, for just understanding Jesus But also, there's a theological anthropology. There's an understanding of who we are in Christ. It is a human Jesus who is interceding for us and who is at the the right hand of God. And I thought, you know, like, yeah, that there's a reality there of how amazing it was when I was first holding my children. You know, obviously, there's a there's a uniqueness of Jesus' incarnation of God in flesh. But there's something about flesh, about redeemed flesh, that is also important to capture where I'm holding my babies and being like this is not like a soul in a squishy bodysuit this body matters like there is something deeply spiritual about this this child's you know body not just their mind and soul and that to me connects to ascension but i was wondering if you talked a lot about what the example of christ's sacrifice indicates for mothering but i am wondering about like how the person of christ should inform how we view our babies and how we should view parenting. Mm,
3: mm. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things for me in becoming a mother was just the ways in which it confronts you with your own embodiedness (laughs) in fresh ways. Uh, And the, the reality that your body can do things over which you have no real control, whatever. I mean, the fact that Three entire humans have been formed in my body without my kind of mental like, direction <laughs> of this. The, the process of birthing and, and breastfeeding and all, all that goes into the, just the visceral experience of mothering. It, it's striking to me that Jesus tells Nicodemus that in, he, he must be born again. He, he kind of quite specifically proclaims this, this language at birthing. And we have you know, Jesus' embodied self ascending into heaven with the scars still on his hand. It's not even just that Jesus sort of didn't become disembodied when he ascended, but that he actually carried with him the wounds that us to be born again. I think it's a you know, metaphor we see again in other parts of the New Testament, this idea of the creation groaning like a, a laboring mother, and this idea that the new creation will be in in many ways a sort of process of, de- of delivery, of giving birth. I, I do think it's all co- all connected up. One of the shocking things about Christianity from the first was this claim that actually we, we're looking forward to the resurrection of the body, not the immortality of the soul. And I think Jesus' ascension is a, is a powerful reminder to us of that, that the one we worship is an enfleshed human, not a disembodied Lord. I do think that we encounter that in parenting in, in quite unique And sort of disruptive ways. Actually, especially I think for those of us who are living in sort of privileged 21st century Western context where we're we're less used to being confronted with the realities of our bodies, at least until we grow old. But I think especially you know for those of us in the first phases of our life, it's place where we are most confronted with our physical humanness.
1: I want to talk, Rebecca, again about some of the secular, for lack of a better word, reaction to Liz's essay and the ways in which the church may be able to specifically tailor its message of affirming children and babies to a culture that's very skeptical, or at least parts of culture remain pretty skeptical of it. Now, we know that not all this birth rate situation, which Ted talked about earlier, is just because people don't want to have children, right? We know that at least here in the States, there's a lot of women who want to have larger families than what they currently have right now or want to have children, period, and don't have children right now. There's other parts of our culture, too, that do feel similar to the comment that I read at the top about you know, some of the unethical nature, potentially, or irresponsible nature of having children. And how can we engage folks in that situation who may believe that they're doing right by some of the other larger things that are happening? Climate change is often listed as one, but there's other, you know, disasters and crises that our world has been facing. How do we how do we talk to those people in ways that, you know, honor those, their convictions, but also kind of meet them where they are?
3: I think the, the climate change stuff, honestly, is less about the, the number of people and, and more about how people consume <laughs> environmental things. So I think it's 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 fairly uneducated as a harsh term, but I think it's it's a very uh, oversimplified and rather misleading claim to make that simply having more humans in the world, you know, giving birth to more humans, is is detrimental to to our environment. I think there is a, a reality to be woken up to, and, and I know you guys have have spoken without much love about the the economists and the, the demographic. Um, Just how they present. <laughs> yeah, well, but the, the reality is, I mean, we we sort of, I think, still have this idea that there are probably too many people around, and so having fewer babies would be better. In fact, that's really not the case. If you look, you know, let's let's talk about America for a minute. We have an, an aging society where they're. If current trends persist, we're not going to have the the young workforce required to care for all the retired and elderly people. It's just it's sort like a demographic time bomb that we're we're setting off here to cross the line into you know quite political territory that will offend people both on the right and on the left. Um, the two t- two big problems here, or two sort of uh, strange conundrums, are one. Yeah, folks, uh, secular folks who, who believe strongly in abortion and how this is somehow the central plank of, of women's rights is um, the ability to choose to abort their child, not recognizing that the large majority of women who have abortions are, you say, because they are poor and abandoned, not because they're living their, you know, emancipated, feminist, free, best life. We're losing a lot of babies that way. And to offend the folks on the right, immigration has been what's sort of been propping us up for a while. Both with younger folks moving to America, but especially younger folks from from cultures where women tend to have more children moving to America. <laughs> you know, policies on policies that have come to us from both sides have actually contributed to this this aging society phenomenon that we have. And there's so much. I think that in, I'm curious how this is going to play out in the next decade. There's, there's so much that's been Sold to us and sold, to, you know, to my generation growing up in terms of sexual liberty being the thing that's going to promote our flourishing and happiness, and and you know, getting married, and having children, not so much. The more studies that come out of places like the Harvard School of Public Health to show that this just isn't the case, <laughs> the more I think we're going to have to start reckoning with those realities. And so there's there's an extent to which with you know, some of our secular friends, like starting conversations by pointing them to some studies could just you know change the the frameworks somewhat. But I think ultimately to say the most beautiful thing that that Christians can model to the world, and this comes straight out of Jesus' own mouth, is the way that we love each other. You know, we we should be known as his disciples because of how we love each other. And that will be remarkable to folks outside the church if it's love that isn't just, you know, how we love our, our immediate family and isn't just how we love our people like us in our communities, people of the same sort of demographics as we are but it'll be how we include and care for single mothers from underprivileged backgrounds who show up at our our churches or how we care for children in the foster system um, by bringing them into our communities or how we care for the elderly among us who are so often neglected and and abandoned in our societies. It'll actually be the ways that we show love to those who are often marginalised that would be the, the most beautiful and powerful apologetic for for Christ in this culture i
1: think i wanted to add one apologetic of my own which is that i think i've mentioned on the show before that i have a good friend who i've gotten to know since moving to hawaii and she had a baby last year so i've known the entire time of our friendship i have known her with her baby And she brings her baby everywhere with her. She goes a lot of places, (laughs) which is not going to be possible for everyone. You know, she's a stay-at-home mom, and so she's able to get out of the house and be with her. But she is constantly letting other people hold her baby, take care of her baby, look after her baby. Her baby's also extremely adorable. But I have had friends who have interacted with her son who have said they have never held a baby before or it's been years since they've held a baby. And again, it's not going to be possible for everyone who has children to do so, but to the extent that people who have children, especially babies, stay home and or only socialize with other people that do, it's kind of not necessarily allowing people to kind of experience this and what it looks like in relational terms. I just have watched so many of my friends fall in love with my friend's child and feel very endeared to it and close to it. I have not seen a lot of people who have been that generous with how they let other people love their children in that way. So I think there's some even kind of like hearts and mind shaping that can come around with those things as well. I would think I'd be remiss, Rebecca, if I did not ask a question on behalf of the many Christian women out there who I know have grown up wanting to get married and have children and have not found a spouse in the church and we know that from a demographics perspective, which, yes, we've been talking numbers this whole entire show, that is going to be the reality for a lot of women out there. There are far more Christian women than there are Christian men. And for Christian women who want to marry Christian men and feel like that is part of their convictions, that's not going to be something that feels feasible for them. And obviously, there are ways to bring children in your life. IVF is one way. Adoption is another way. What would it look like for the church to support these women, especially in their desires to have children?
3: Mm -hmm. Honestly, the first thing, and and I've already mentioned this, but it's worth repeating, is to move away from this lie which says that a woman's highest calling is to be a wife and a mother and to remember that for all of us, married or single, parents or otherwise, our highest calling is to follow Jesus. I think so often, even by very well-meaning parents, um, I'm trying to be very conscious not to do this. with My children, we we can bring up our our children to think that what we expect of them as the norm is that they'll get married and have children, and so that if they grow up and, and live their lives as a single person, they'll always sense that we are somehow dissatisfied or that this is you know not not the best. Um, I have our community group is predominantly single people and, and many of them single women, and even in the last few weeks three of, of my friends in the group have shared how their, their mothers have kind of put pressure on them to get married and have children. And they're thinking, well, A, <laughs> I have no, you know, it's not like this is just something I can kind of wave a magic wand, even if this is this is what I <laughs> I, I want. Right. They certainly are wanting to, to marry Christian men, as you point out. It's actually always been the case that there have been more Christian women than men from, from as far as we can tell, from the very early church. Um, and it's, it's the case sort of globally as well. So it's not just a, of local phenomenon that i think it's profoundly damaging if we bring people up with the idea that actually getting married especially for women is the sort of christian norm and anything like remaining single is is somehow second best so i think we need to start that work early on we then need to to live in ways in the church that include people who aren't married and have children so that, that we're actually living into biblical community ethics rather than just into the the sort of nuclear family idea so that folks who do live their life as singles aren't excluded and that's true actually whether they're they're single never married whether they're single mothers raising children whether they're widowed whether they're divorced or been abandoned by their their husbands it's there's multiple different forms in which someone can can live as a single person and often can feel on the fringes in certain church contexts that we need to to work against and i think ultimately for all of us actually whether we're married or not, whether we have children or not, we need to remember that Jesus is, is our life. I I love and and so frequently come back myself to Jesus's conversation with Martha after Lazarus's death and before he raises Lazarus. And we don't know whether Martha was married or not. I mean, the sort of whether Mary and Martha are married is is just not commented on. I mean, we can maybe assume that they're not, but it's just not it's not something that the text tells us. And Jesus looks into Martha's eyes and says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am what you need right now. Not I, What you mostly need is not actually your brother back. What you mostly need is me. And I think that's something that, especially for, for single people, to be reminded of and encouraged in that, that Jesus is, ironically, both the ideal single person who never married and the ideal husband who will one day welcome us into relationship." with him that will be the greatest marriage of all eternity, right? So for all of us, whether married or single, I think keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus as our hope, as our life, as our res- resurrection, giving any disappointments and, and heartbreak that we have, whether it's wanting to be married and not being married, whether it's wanting children and not having children, whether it's having children and having a very difficult experience of mothering, or whether it's having children who grow up and leave the faith, like there are all sorts of ways in which we can have our hearts broken in this life. But fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the one who will wipe every tear from our eyes, I think is the best fit for any of us, whether single or married.
1: Well, thank you very much, Rebecca, for this conversation. I'm glad we were able to talk about culture and theology. And I hope that our listeners have some responses that they want to send us. We'd love to hear from all of you guys. Send us an email. We are at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. You know, if you're an economist and you feel like you were maligned in this episode, please stick up for yourself and push back on how we talked about you because we'd like to do better, I'm sure. People can also go on Twitter. We are at CT Podcasts. All right. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, and it is when we get a chance to hear what has brought everyone joy in the past week. Ted, do you want to go?
2: I'm going to bring an album this week. and. It is called "I Am For You: Songs of Prayer and Praise" from a group called Meek Squad. This is a group that's out of Durham, North Carolina. Meek has a double meaning here, both in kind of the "Meek shall inherit the earth" style of Meek, but also one of the artists on this is a guy named Sloan Meek, who has a cerebral palsy, spastic quadriplegia, cortical, cortical blindness, and actually, what this album it really comes out of is this community. In North Carolina, it's uh, Reality Ministries, which is a ministry that has a a number of folks with different disabilities. And so one of the other artists in this is is a woman, Suvia Carroll, who also has a cerebral palsy. And then um, kind of the third part of the kind of core group here is Lee Anderson, who's from the band Look Homeward from the Gathering Church out there in the North Carolina area. I will say there's so many ways this album could have gone wrong. <laughs> you know, like as a concept, I'm like, yeah, 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 you know, praise and worship music with, you know, folks with cerebral palsy and, and, and various other disabilities that may affect the singing and joyful noise aspect. I may listen to that once and then set it aside. Nope. They, like Lee Anderson knew what he was doing, putting this together. It is truly something that I have listened to repeatedly and it's beautiful. The music is just really stripped down, simple, the ways in which kind of the singing, kind of moan style singing that some of the members contribute, like it's just beautifully integrated. It's just really, really works. And the lyrics, I think, pull out that kind of the way to rejoice in our limitations Especially when our, our our limitations do not block us from declaring the phrases. I yes, uh, please let me in. And That we're hearing in the background there is in fact uh, some of the echoes uh, that I hear I'm in this album as well. Yeah, right on. Like, uh,
3: <laughs> hi. This is my um, joyful moment. <laughs>
2: yes, that is a joyful moment. I love that. That is a, that is a precious moment right here in the middle of precious moments. I love it. Yeah, so there. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of one of the songs on this track, "Abba, I Belong to You." It's just the, the weird are <laughs> that simple. "Abba, I belong to you, belong, belong." And the very things that I think drive you away draw you Mom, in. Mommy,
3: can you take me swimming? I mean, when
2: when swimming. And um, that's that that is what that's what bringing me joy, <laughs> Rebecca. I am, I, this may be a new precious moment for me for this week. This is, I'm a,
3: just, I, I'm just letting this bit. happen because it's what we've just been talking about. My, my yeah. two year old. So I now have all my kids who are 10, eight and two they're in the room demanding that I take them swimming. Yes. And my, my two year old, this will be my last comment on this podcast. Uh, Brian and <laughs> I um, had two delightful daughters, Miranda and Eliza. Um, and then we thought long and hard about whether to have a third child. Cause you know, we were both working and, family were far away, et cetera, et cetera. And then we thought, Do you know what? We're going to have a third child. And I got pregnant with Luke in November. And then I got a book contract for my first book in February. I ended up submitting the manuscript the day before I delivered. Luke, oh, my gosh. And then editing it while he was like a one-month-old and I was breastfeeding him. And it was tot- a total nightmare. Not, not the, the pregnancy was fine. The birth was fine. The writing was fine. The editing with the new one was breastfeeding was a nightmare. And he continues to be just a lot of hard work and utterly delightful. So, <laughs> yeah, that is a very well, accurate description. Oh, my ten year old affirms that this is true. <laughs> um, those those are my last thoughts on on parenting and having more than two point four children.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and also your precious moment, I'm assuming as well. And indeed, here it is. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And where can people find you? Remind us the name of your books. Tell us your website. All that stuff.
3: Yeah, well, so my latest book, The Secular Creed,
1: is everywhere that
3: you buy books, I think, hopefully. You can follow me on Twitter at Rebecca McLaughlin and in Instagram. I think it's Rebecca underscore McGlock, and I never really understand Instagram. But those are, those are the two <laughs> places. Oh, and I have a website, um where I sometimes post subscriber yeah. things. So, yeah, all sorts of fun.
1: <laughs> awesome. Thank you. All right, my precious moment, I think, was going camping last week. And it was phenomenal. I have realized that I like make, have mixed feelings about camping in many ways because of all the work that it takes to go camping and all the grocery shopping and packing. But what you lose in all the time preparing, you gain from all the just different interactions that you can have with people and ways that you interact with them over 36 hours, 24 hours, however long we were doing it. We did this for a night and then we ended up going On a hike afterwards, and I think it was just really lovely to not only spend so much time outside, which we really loved, but also to be able to spend so much time seeing people enjoy each other and enjoy the outdoors. There was also one session of crab hunting. Ted, have you done crab hunting before when you lived out here? I I never have, no. They all come out at night, and then essentially you just chase them down and try to capture them and put them in your cup. <laughs> Which <laughs> is essentially literally what it is chasing crabs on the beach I've chased
2: crabs, but I have never never actually I don't think I ever, you know I was there when I was a kid, so I don't know that I ever caught one.
1: Okay. It well, really helps if you one. come out at night because at what night with
2: there. with cups I that th- th- that's what I was doing wrong.
1: I highly recommend that if you want to hold them on there. Alright, that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps, and transcription is done by Bunya Shola and Yvonne Sue. If people have comments, questions, feedback, pushback, send us an email. We are at podcast at Christianytoday dot or on Twitter at CT Podcasts. And you can get a free mug. A free Quick to Listen mug. So the way that it works is Go to apple Podcasts, write a review of the show send us a screenshot of that comment you have to email it to us so we know it's you we will enter you in a drawing give away at least i think we're going to give at least away 25 different quick tools and mugs that is how that will happen we will also coordinate with you obviously about how to send it to you but we would love to hear more of you guys specifically through apple Podcasts. so that would be a great way to support the show and also get merch All right. Thank you everyone. We'll see you all next week. Bye.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick. And Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.